Hi, my name is Ray. <coughs> I have been a part of Beacon uh, for the past five plus years, and it's been a huge blessing for me personally. And I'm so glad to share God's word with you tonight. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. Uh, may your work do its work in our heart, and just my pray. Uh, so a few months before I got married, uh, then my girlfriend sent me a little text. And then it was actually uh, tonight's passage, the James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. At first, you know, I thought, cool, like she sent me a Bible verse, you know. So uh, maybe she was really blessed by these verses and then wanted to share that with me. So I was like, hey, as all good boyfriends should do, I said, hey, amen, amen to that, right? And then she was like, you really don't get it, do you? Right? So I was like, why? Right? I said, amen to the Bible verse. That's good, right? And then she was basically pointing out uh, my own inconsistencies because I said a lot of good things to her. Hey, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. And then I followed up with very little. So a lot of times, like, I even forgot what I promised her. You know, that's how bad it was, right? So Basically, things I said just didn't match up with my action. And when I saw this uh, passage, it made me uncomfortable. But it did send a signal that something wasn't right with me. Similarly, passages like uh, today's uh, sometimes make us uncomfortable. Um, it tells us that there is something, there might be something wrong with us, and something needs to change. Bible contains a lot of sobering, unsettling uh, passages like tonight's that condemn the inconsistencies in our lives and force us to examine our own faith. Hebrews 6 and 10 are probably, probably the most well-known warning passages. And these passages, if you read it, it's kind of scary. Like You're like, oh, shoot, what am I going to do with this, you know? And, and even Jesus, our Lord, does... That with most notably Matthew 7, I never knew you passage, and uh, chapter 25 of Matthew, the parable of sheep and the goat. Uh, these passages, however uncomfortable they are, they are for our benefit. For unbelievers or uh, someone who thinks they are saved but they are not, uh, it exposes their faith for what they are and invite them to run and embrace Jesus. For believers, it is meant to wake us up from our spiritual slumber and encourage us to keep pressing on growing our walk. Uh, or as uh, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner once put it, the warnings are always effective, effective in the lives of the elect. God uses the warnings as a means to keep us in the faith. Going back to chapter 1, uh, and uh, the first part of chapter 1, we see that in James offers a series of practical tests to examine our faith. First part of chapter 1 talks about our response under trials. How in the face of trials, we count it a joy, since we know that it is God's means of maturing us. In the second part of chapter 1, we should not just, it says we should not just he, be hearers of the word, 
but doers of the word. In chapter 2, it tells us how the sin of partiality betrays the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the later chapters, James also deals with practical issues uh, with our speech, the worldliness, pride, and suffering. Summing them all up, if your faith does not hold up against these tests, you may want to examine yourself to see if you really are in the faith. The stakes couldn't be higher, or as um, Pastor Kim likes to say, you cannot get this one wrong. It's like uh, you get a liquor ticket from your friend, or when you think that's your friend, and then you know, you're happy, and then you go into the arena only to find out that find out the tickets are fake, right? And it's kind of like that. We want to make sure that we're not trying to enter the heaven's gate with the fake tickets, only that the stakes are much higher in this case. The Bible tells us that all Christians are born again and are given a new life and have a new master. New birth inevitably produces a new and different kind of life. Imagine that there's a restaurant around your school and it's in a prime location, it's open for 24 hours, and, but the only problem with this restaurant is that the food is unbearably horrible. Like, you just cannot eat these. But however, one time you're just driving by this restaurant and you see this sign and it says, under new management. So like, oh, shit, this is going to be our new spot. We're going to hang out here. We're going to study and do all this stuff, right? Spend time with your friends in the, you know, in the, at late, late night. And you walk in, and it feels very promising. But you discover that when you actually try the food, it's the same old nasty food. And you're disappointed, right? You feel cheated. You're angry. In the same way, we are under the new management, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Things are supposed to be different. If not, it just doesn't make sense. We are just a walking contradiction. After all, the earliest Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord, acknowledging that, acknowledging his Lordship over our life. In today's message, a passage, uh, James offers two negative examples, two positive examples, two examples of what false faith looks like and two examples of what true faith looks like. Let's first look at two negative examples, the faith that does not save. Uh, James starts by asking two rhetorical questions with following illustration of good wishes without action in verses 14 through 17. What good, is it, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, it's James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if, if it does not have works, is dead. The first example tells us that the claim of faith without practical love is useless. 
Our love for God and our neighbor must demonstrate the substance of our claims and justifying grace of God. Uh, James is very concerned with people with this kind of faith, ones with the- theological assent but without any commitment. He especially goes after the fruit produced from our faith. After all, our actions really show who we really are, right? Like, unfortunately, in America and in a lot of countries, we see a lot of politicians, right? And they say a lot of good things. They make a lot of good promises. But once they get elected, they do what's expedient for them or what's beneficial for them. So their actions actually tell us what they really value. Um, Apostle John uh, kind of restates what James says by saying, hey, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Um, one of my uh, favorite author, J.I. Packer, says this in his classic, Knowing God, is like highly recommended book. He says this, It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish, perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. That is not the Christian spirit. But it is the spirit of some Christians whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home, making nice middle-class Christian friends, and bringing up their Christian in nice middle-class Christian ways, and who leave the marginalized of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on as best they can. The Christian spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christian spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. Let me repeat this. Christian spirit is about spending and being spent for others. This was published in uh, 1973, but this statement rings even truer now than ever. Think this in your own context and ask yourself the same question. The reasons you chose your major, reasons you chose your school, friends, are they just limited to securing a well-paying job? or respected career in life? Are your ambitions only limited to these things? What ways can you leverage your major or talent to love your neighbor? Older I get, I realize that these allurements are real. Like, these are real, like, temptations. Uh, What is the reality of your faith? Is it living and vibrant faith? As James says here, you don't turn the blind eyes to people in need. Good works, do not save, does not, good works do not save us, 
but genuine faith inevitably produces good works. Going back to James' rhetorical question in verse 14, the answers are clear. What good is it? No good for anything. Can it save? No. Um, let's go on to verse 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Devil has the right knowledge about God and he responds in fear. His theology as a fallen angel is probably more accurate than a lot of us. He clearly knows there is one God, one true God, and but James is saying that mere theological knowledge of God is not enough. I'm not saying that theological uh, knowledge is not important. I actually believe that it is really important for we cannot obey what we do not know. If you love something, it's only natural, natural that you want to know more about it, right? However, we must remember that good theology is not an end, but means to an end. In fact, the comparison to demonic faith implies that Belief without obedience may even be worse than useless. What is devil lacking here? He knows about God. His theology is on, on point. What he lacks is a living relationship with Jesus. Simply put, do you love Jesus Christ? This is really the fundamental component of what separates true faith from the false faith. The issue is, as the old children's song goes, do you love your Jesus deep down in your heart? Um, so my old pastor, he shared this story uh, before he graduated. Um, shared this story when he was in seminary. So um, for his final paper, the professor asked students to write a final paper on the parable of Good Samaritans. So it's a final paper. So you know you, you need to graduate, you know, so you spend a lot of time studying. And uh, when the time came for them to turn in their papers, unbeknownst to the students, the professor disguised as a homeless man and then sat in front of the school and begging for money. All the students just passed him by. So um, when uh, students turned in their papers, the professor gave them like F for <laughs> to everyone <laughs> because they might know all the details about this parable, but they just didn't get it. Like, you know, they knew the letters of the um, parable, but they didn't get the spirit of the parable. Same thing with uh, the... Um, what we talked about, the faith of demon, just knowing about God is not enough. So in verse 18, James is essentially saying, stop saying things. Show me and then tell me. If not, your faith isn't that much, from, that much different from that of a devil. You cannot see my faith, and I cannot see your faith. Only way we can see the reality of each other's faith is by the things we do produce 
from our faith. Now, James gives us two positive examples of genuine faith, the faith that actually saves. Uh, going to verse 20 through verse 26. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified, justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James uses two examples of individuals to further clarify his point, and they couldn't be any more different. Abraham, you know, you know the father Abraham, who had many sons, a friend of God and standard of righteousness for Jews. On the other hand, Rahab was a pagan harlot, prostitute, probably the worst kind of sinners at the time. Abraham was given a promise in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, uh, 5 through 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. In other words, he was justified by faith. However, what he knew and believed about God was gloriously demonstrated, demonstrated or fulfilled, as James puts in Genesis 22, some 35, 40 years later, when God commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. It is just a really painful thing to do, isn't it? Sacrificing your own son. Abraham knew God. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice his own son, own son, through whom God's people were promised, Abraham knew that God does not violate his own promise. He trusted God that in his power, that somehow, some way, that he will keep his promises. Uh, that's one main reason why we study the Bible, to know who God is. So when the time like this comes, we rely on God's character. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. Abraham was justified before God in chapter 15, but he was justified before man in chapter 22, some 35 years later. It was a sacrificial and painful obedience. But through this, his faith was validated and gloriously put on display for all to see. His faith was in absolute harmony with his action. Now, story of Rahab. She heard about the God of Israel, like who parted the Red Sea and delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, and she believed. And she took a huge risk, risking her life to hide Israelite spies. Her faith didn't hinge on her past transgressions. 
Her newfound faith was a living faith. What little she knew, she probably didn't know a whole lot. She acted on it, although it was risky and frightening. It was a trusting, costly obedience. She put everything on the line. Faith isn't just about how much you know, although it helps, but a firm trust played out in real life. Uh, even in church history, it was people who acted upon their faith that made a huge difference. Think what early Christians did in Roman Empire under Nero. There was unprecedented persecution, uh, I mean, unprecedented spreading of plagues in Rome. It was so contagious that people even threw out their own family members out on the street because they don't want to be infected. Sociologist Rodney Stark writes that Though the plague terrified the pagans, Christians greeted the epidemic as merely schooling and testing. Isn't it crazy? They looked at it as a schooling and testing. At a time, at a time when all other faiths were called to question, Christianity offered explanation and comfort. He goes on to say that even more importantly, Christian doctrine provided a prescription for action. Unafraid of danger, they took charge of the sick, sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The history tells us that the most powerful nation at the time, Rome, fell on their knees before Jesus, owing no small part to living and active faith of Christians. I'm not saying that our faith has to be some kind of radical faith all the time, but I have to say this, that although our faith does not need to be perfect, but one way or another, it has to be real faith, working through love. Uh, some of you may have questions about verse 24, where it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. On the surface, it seems like James is contradicting Paul. A lot of inks have been spilled on this verse to either dismiss the Bible entirely or to uh, explain the actual meaning of the passage. However, if you look closely at what Paul is saying, Paul is essentially making the same point from a different angle. Uh, last Friday, Francis talked about, uh, he talked about Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 1 through 9. And it's possibly the most well-known passage that clearly teaches us that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. But if you look at the next verse, verse 10, this faith does not remain there. We are saved by grace, but it says in verse 10, we are created for good works. Saved life inevitably leads to good works. It is a working faith. Lonely faith is a dead faith. Or as John Calvin says, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone, or that just remains alone. Uh, Paul expounds justification by faith alone to the Jews who think you need to add work and all those rituals and all these other things 
to faith to be saved. However, when Paul um, writes to Titus, um, he says this. Uh, Titus was ministering to Cretans who are described as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, who think once you have faith, once you are saved, it doesn't matter how you live. To these people, this is what Paul says. Possibly the most similar past, uh, verse to uh, uh, what James is saying here. Ti uh, let's turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 16. He's writing, to, writing about the Cretans. Um, it says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Pretty similar to verse 18. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Not exactly mincing words, right? It is possible, so Paul is saying that it's, it's possible to make a profession of faith but deny him by works. Let's uh, move on to chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Paul tells us what happens after grace of God appears in our life. Uh, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Pay attention that grace of, grace of God appeared. It isn't like we bring down the grace of God from heaven by our own effort. But we are just a passive recipients of this grace. Once this grace appears in our life, verse 12 says, this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It explains what transformed life looks like, re renouncing the values that we held dearly and living for God. And verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Isn't that kind of cool how he says it here? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, in verse 14, one of the purposes of this grace is to purify his people who are zealous for good works. Zealous, that is, that it is not a chore. It's not like your mom twisting your arm every time you come home to clean your room or something. But the picture we have is that people who are just enthusiastic, eager, energetic to do good works, that it is our heart's deep desire. Our desire changes, transformed by the gospel spurred on by our love for God and appreciation for the amazing grace that saves sinners like you and me. We talked about how Abraham's faith was justified before God in Genesis chapter 15, but justified before man in chapter 22. In a hyper-individualistic society like ours, it is tempting to think that, hey, man, like, who cares what other people think? I'm cool with God, and that's enough, right? That's all that matters, right? Yeah, being justified before God is foundational. But that only shows one side of the coin. Understanding the gospel inevitably leads us to look upward and outward, not inward. In other words, it leads us to look upward to God 
and outward to those around us. Imagine weekend where everybody's living in sin, like no one cares about God. We're just here to hang out and have a good time. And no one's making any visible progress in their walk with God. Uh, for a short time, it would be kind of fun to be around, you know, co- same college-aged people and have fun. But over time, it would be very distra- distressing to come to fellowship like this. I'm not saying we should give up when things get hard, but actually, sometimes we should have more reason to stay put. But it would be hard. Your progress matters not just to God, but to all of us. We are all in this together. We are the body of Christ. All of us matters to each other. I have been so blessed by Beacon because I have witnessed so many people's lives transformed by this ministry and passionately living for God. I recently came across uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 12 and 15 during our family devotional and thought that we can draw out some practical applications through this. After all, it's kind of pretty unlikely that God will ask us to like sacrifice our son and or like hide the Israelite spies. So um, I'm gonna maybe draw out some practical applications from this verse. So in First Timothy chapter four, verse twelve, Paul tells his spiritual son Timothy, "Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers on an example in speech, in conduct, in love." in faith, in purity. Practice these things in uh, verse 15. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So there's, let's see, five things that uh, Paul talks about. Is our faith working in these areas in our life? Is our speech marked by God's grace, building up others, encouraging it? Or is it marked by constant gossip, lying, and unwholesome talk? Is it more fun for you to like tearing someone down instead of building them up? Actually, it's kind of more fun for me to just tearing someone down, but it's just me. So (laughs) after gossiping maliciously for hours, some of us even have audacity to say at the end, oh yeah, let's pray for this guy, you know? What about your conduct? Is our conduct marked by integrity, honesty, uprightness, diligence, patience, and humility, or is it marked by duplicity, laziness, immorality, slander, irritability, or arrogance? And maybe copying and cheating define our whole (laughs) academic career. What about love? Are we loving our neighbor in practical and sacrificial sense as James teaches? Or is it just all talk? And are you the one, like, after we have, like, this church event and everybody's having fun, and you're having the most fun. But when it's all over and when you have to, like, clean up and, you know, put the chairs away and whatever, you just disappear. You know, no one, you're nowhere to be found. Um, Or even simple things like doing dish for your parents. And when was the last time you helped someone who was really, really in need? Or are you just helping someone uh, when it's convenient, using your leftover time and resources? 
Um, or does your heart move to share the gospel with unsafe family members or friends? Um, does your, how about uh, your faith? Is it working through love and producing fruits? Does your faith stand strong in times of trial and tri tribulation, trusting God in the face of trouble and temptation? Or you just disappear, shut yourself out from everyone else and sometimes even leave church? By faith, are you content in whatever situation that God puts you in, convinced of his love and sovereign, sovereign care? Lastly, how about your purity? Are you keeping yourself unstained and uncorrupted, guarding your heart, having a proper boundary in your relationships, honoring God with your body, and offering your body as a living sacrifice? Or are you constantly lusting in your mind, looking at bad stuff on the internet, or engaging in sexual sin? Do you rationalize yourself thinking, Christian ethic is kind of unrealistic, since everyone else is doing it? Or are you secretly embarrassed or resentful about your inexperience in this area, entertaining impure thoughts, wishing things are different? Paul t tells Timothy to make progress so that all may see it because our progress matters. James ends with the sobering image of corpse. What can corpse do? Nothing, right? Other than like stink. The characteristics of living creature is marked by vibrancy, activity, and life. So, okay, so that was a lot of guilt tripping. So I would like to end tonight's message by offering some encouragement. None of us, none of us is really perfect, like if you're honest with yourself, and we all fail time to time. And if you say you're perfect, and you have like different kind of problem, Um, author Lydia, Lydia Brownback says this, Christian life, discipleship is not first about doing, but about becoming. Yes, of course, we are to do, but in Christ, what we do flows out of what we've already become. In other words, we don't do to become. We become in order to do. Discipleship is simply the spirit-enabled process of turning away from sin in all its outworkings and coming more and more to resemble the Savior. Let me repeat this. It is not about doing, but about becoming. We don't do to become, but we become in order to do as we have seen in Ephesians 2 and Titus 2. It is not about perfection, but direction. It is marked by a long obedience in the same direction. Where are we going and what we are becoming? That's the issue. Good news is that God doesn't leave us alone to do this on our own. We work, but also God's promise is that God is intensely involved in this to bring it to completion. As we seek to follow our Lord, He is with us every step of the way, enabling us to follow Him. At the beginning of this message, I mentioned about a few warning passages in the Bible. Perhaps the most famous and the scariest Warning passage in the Bible is in Hebrew 6. Um, let's turn to uh, Hebrew 6. So at the beginning, you know, like, the author of the Hebrew tells us a lot of like, scary stuff. But do not miss that right after the severe warning, 
the author of Hebrews says this. Let's go to verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown, shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. It is saying that he knows what you're doing even when no one's watching. No one notices. What comfort and encouragement does this bring that he knows? Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have a full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises uh, inherit the promises. The author here commands us to persevere to attain this full assurance of hope. The great benefit of obedience is this assurance. As we do good works and make progress, not just we gain the head knowledge, but we experientially know that God is working in us. And it gives us a strength to keep going. Not being sluggish or lazy, but just keep going. I think these two words actually sum up the Christian life. Just keep going. Keep pressing on. God wants us to have this full assurance. And the only way we can gain this assurance is by producing fruits in our lives. Apostle Peter also emphasizes this point in 2 Peter 1. Uh, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not some things, but all things. In Christ, God gave us everything we need. United to Christ, he brings to us all the grace we need to be what we are supposed to be and to do what we are supposed to do. God gave Holy Spirit to transform us and change our heart and our desire. And we can talk to God through prayer in times of need. Also, God gave us the Spirit-inspired Scripture to equip us for every good work, as 2 Timothy 3 says. Not some work, but every good work. Also, do not minimize the importance of fellowship like this one. We also have each other to encourage and come alongside in our walk with the Lord. And uh, moving on to verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In this way, we make our calling and election sure. In other words, we gain assurance. We gain confidence. Justification is all God's doing. However, in sanctification, we work just as God is working in us. It isn't supposed to be easy. As Peter says in verse 5, make every effort. And also he says, be diligent. It is a hard work. But there is nothing more joy-giving than this, walking with the Lord. Take comfort and be confident in the fact that God is in this together. And he will make sure it will happen. And we are in this together as church. Let's rejoice and celebrate any little progress that we make in our, in our life and each other's life. And my prayer is that there is more of this shared in our small group, each other's story, 
about how God is working in our lives. Let me end this with uh, this passage. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It doesn't say partially, but completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Not maybe do it, but God's promise is that he will surely do it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you for your faithfulness. I uh, pray that uh, we'll just continue to encourage one another for good works, and uh, we'll just seek to honor you everything, uh, with everything we are. Uh, we are weak, but we, you are strong, Lord. Help us to rely on you. Uh, thank you for um, our time together, and also I pray for your blessing in small group that more of your story will be shared through our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.